0: Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report. I'm Brian Cardow. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient constitutional and appellate law questions. This week, constitutional scholar and UC Hastings law professor Zachary Price joins us to discuss a cautionary law review article he's written chronicling the historical social drivers, principal among them the labor and civil rights movements that engendered a near-absolute First Amendment right in our country to free speech, even to all manner of disparaging and hateful vitriol, the sort of expression not uncommonly regulated in other free democracies. And if historical events and social dynamics can strengthen the First Amendment, Price wonders whether the opposite could occur. Whether an historically contingent First Amendment is vulnerable to a spate of corrosive contemporary phenomena, he cites fake news, the threat and fear of terrorism, and increasingly prevalent hate speech, that might find pressure points in the First Amendment doctrine and make tighter governmental regulation of expressive conduct with the stated aim of curbing those intractable problems seem more palatable and doctrinally more plausible to jurists. Though acknowledging the destructive effect of widely disseminated false information or hateful rhetoric, Price in his article warns that any attempt to correct these problems by weakening the First Amendment will only give rise to worse consequences. But before hearing from Professor Price, let's get to our opening briefs. Four cert grants issued from the U.S. Supreme Court Monday, one implicating the Double Jeopardy Clause, another regarding credit card companies and the Sherman Antitrust Act, and one involving the 1968 Omnibus Crime and Safe Streets Act, but the most noteworthy pits the United States versus Microsoft over the interpretation of a 1980s-era statute and whether it allows the federal government to reach digital information that Microsoft stores outside of the U.S. Here to tell us a bit more about that case is Blaine Evanson, litigation partner with Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher. Blaine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here. It's not uh, always readily apparent, judging from the case caption, you know, how big of a deal a case is. But we have two substantial parties here on either side of the V. US v. Microsoft in the most prominent of the the cases granted cert this week at the US Supreme Court. Um, And it it brings before the court here now uh, another question relating to kind of the governmental reach as to stored electronic communications, things like emails and, and the like. Uh, What what specifically is the question uh, presented uh, here?
1: Uh, United States versus Microsoft uh, involves a statute called the Stored Communications Act, and that statute gives the government the authority to seek a warrant to obtain stored communications, including email. And unlike the Carpenter case, that the court is also hearing this term and that also involves the uh, Stored Communications Act, the Microsoft case doesn't doesn't implicate the Fourth Amendment, and doesn't at least directly implicate privacy concerns. Rather, the question is whether the Stored Communications Act reaches beyond the borders of the United States and allows the government to compel uh, tech companies to disclose emails that are stored on a foreign server. So, in the Microsoft case, it's a server in Ireland. And that's that's the question that's presented in, in the Microsoft case.
0: And those emails are stored abroad in a, in a server, but, but pretty readily accessible by, say, a, a computer um, tech person working in Northwest Washington uh, at Microsoft could access those emails pretty quickly and easily, right?
1: That's that's exactly right. It's, uh, it's It's accessed and it's disclosed in the United States. And so the government argues that it's not actually foreign conduct. It's actually domestic conduct, even though the you know the the bits and bytes are stored on a server in another country.
0: Maybe fleshing out a little bit more the the principal arguments brought to bear by either side: the government, of course, concerned with how not being able to reach this kind of information could hinder investigations; um, worried that criminal defendants could pretty easily kind of offshore um, inculpatory data. Uh, and Microsoft, of course, brings up that that territoriality question, saying, "You oh, know, this is a." a U.S. federal statute, and and this information is stored outside of the United States. Um, Can you walk me through the the, the main arguments these parties are bringing to bear?
1: Sure. Uh, The big question, the big legal question in the case, is about the extraterritorial reach of the statute, because um, generally speaking, statutes are not uh, uh, read to apply extraterritorially absent some statement in the statute, Uh, the Supreme Court's been clear. Uh, in cases like R.J.R. Nabisco and Kiobol and Morrison, that you interpret the statute to only apply within the borders of the United States. Um, and that's essentially what the Second Circuit held. But the government's argument is, as I mentioned earlier, that there's not actually anything material or anything that the statute is focused on happening in a foreign country. It's all happening in, in the United States. That's where uh, the data is being pulled. That's where it's being disclosed. So it doesn't matter whether... Microsoft, in its business judgment, places that data on a server in, you know, California, Texas, Ireland, or Zimbabwe. Um, everything relevant, everything material is happening in the United States. So there's not actually any foreign conduct taking place, and we're not actually applying the uh, SCA beyond the borders of the United States. Sure. And Microsoft argument, Microsoft's argument is... Sort of the the flip side of that, that the fo- focus of the statute is on protecting privacy, and the privacy that's being invaded when you pull these emails off uh, off a foreign server is is occurring outside the United States. That's where you're taking the data from. That's where you are. Um, that's where the the relevant conduct is is taking place. And um, and Microsoft also argues, um, and the government argues acknowledges this too. And this comes throughout the Second Circuit opinions, that this is really an outdated statute that, um, you know, was enacted in 1986 when email was, you know, just being conceived of and born. And so Microsoft's, a main thrust in Microsoft's uh, briefing so far is that the government's arguments are better directed at Congress than they are at the court, and that Congress really needs to fix the statute.
0: Yeah, it seems like the, the sort of point that could be applied in a lot of different cases um, like the one you mentioned, the Carpenter of U.S., first U.S. case where um, you could have kind of outmoded doctrine or outmoded statutes that, that didn't conceive of um, data being entirely virtual. And so the court or perhaps Congress needing to reckon with that. Uh, what, what was the Second Circuit's reasoning uh, they cited with, uh, with Microsoft here, correct?
1: That's right. Um, the, the Second Circuit panel ruled that enforcing the warrant as to information stored abroad would constitute an impermissible, impermissible extraterritorial application of uh, the SCA. And it relied on these same cases, the RGR and Nabisco, Kiobel, and Morrison cases, um, and basically said, we don't infer that statutes apply extraterritorially. So, regardless of, you know, whether this is a good idea or not, uh, we're not going to extend the reach of, uh, of the SCA. Um, and there was a strong Concurrence in the uh, in the panel, uh, Judge Lynch, who is a very smart and well-respected circuit judge, and it's clear from the Microsoft briefing so far that Judge Lynch's opinion is one that they see as most defensible. And he acknowledges that this that this isn't an issue of privacy; that uh, we're not talking about the Fourth Amendment. And he didn't even really defend the uh, applying the SCA abroad. He simply concluded that. Clear that we don't interpret statutes as applying extraterritorially, and if the government wants the statute to operate differently than that, then they need to take that up with Congress. And then the the, the government petitioned for rehearing on banc, and uh, in sort of an unusual move for the Second Circuit, they split four four, and there were several uh, dissents from the denial of, of rehearing. Uh, but there were no there was no en banc activity before the government uh, petitioned for certiorari. Hmm. Uh,
0: among those dissenters, if, if you know kind of what was the, the the principal qualm, what was the, the biggest problem they had with uh, the Second Circuit's reasoning?
1: I mean, the main thread that you see running throughout all the um, the dissents is just the dramatic impact that the Second Circuit's ruling is going to have on the government's ability to investigate crimes. And that is, you know, front and center in the government cert petition uh, that, you know, in hundreds and thousands of cases every year, the government obtains emails on foreign servers, and those emails are necessary for the investigation and for the enforcement of the uh, of the criminal law. And I was actually this morning just reading an article on CNN talking about um, a uh, a child uh, pornography ring where the government has you know the guilty plea from one person, but is unable to get all these emails from foreign servers that would lead to uh, you know more arrests and more hopefully more convictions. Uh, but they're unable to get this stuff because of uh the second circuit's ruling so that's really the the main concern running through the dissents from denial of rehearing running through the government's uh, cert petition is just what a uh, deleterious impact this is having on the government's ability to uh prosecute federal crime
0: sure and that that sort of gets to my next question is um as to as to to why cert is is granted here it's noted um that this is sort of a, an issue of first impression. There is not a circuit split as to this territoriality question with the Stored Communications Act. Uh, and so in instances like that, some percolation is usually allowed for before the Supreme Court decides to toy in. But it sounds like the, the answer to this question really bears on a, a lot of, of federal investigations. And so is that sort of the, the reason why the question needs to be answered now? And it, do you have any sort of thought as to how the court might, uh, might, might approach this one?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and that was sort of that baffled uh, the commentators when they saw the court take the cases. You know, why why did the court grant cert when there's no circuit split? Um, and in particular, why why grant cert when Congress is right now uh working through bills that would reshape the SCA and make it more uh more in line with cloud computing and the issues that we're dealing with today. Um, why why do the court wade into this and you know I, I obviously don't know but i have to think that they got the message from the government that this is really going to significantly hamper our ability to do the in- investigative and prosecutorial work that that we're charged with doing and you know maybe a lack of faith that congress is actually going to come through and and uh, and fix fix this problem so that's that's all i can think of as to why the court would grant grant cert in the absence of a circuit split And you know, in terms of how how the court might be inclined to view the case, it's it's hard to say at this stage because the merits briefing hasn't come in, and we haven't seen how the Amici are going to line up and whether all of Silicon Valley is going to get behind uh, behind Microsoft. But I think it's important to note that this is a different case from a lot of the privacy cases, like Carpenter and United States versus Jones, which was the GPS tracking case. I mean, that case was unanimous in the judgment. In saying that it is a, you know, it does implicate the Fourth Amendment when you put a a GPS tracker on a car, and there are other cases like this in recent years where the court has taken a pretty pro-defendant view on privacy and digital privacy. Um, But this case is different because of the fact that Congress could enact the SCA in a way that, or amend the SCA in a way that allowed the government to get this data on foreign servers. The question is just whether Congress has already done so. So it's hard to, hard to say how the justices are going to line up on that question.
0: Sure. Yeah. That might be my my last question is is whether that's the prevailing sentiment that the the act here just needs to be kind of get get, get an update to borrow a tech term. You know, is it the sort of thing where um, as it stands, the court is ill-equipped to to interpret it. If the statute itself is kind of not adapted for a, a modern technological world, do you kind of think that without uh, a congressional action here, that the court is like flying blind a little bit? How how do you view that?
1: Yeah, I mean, the court really, in this case, has an up or down uh, way of deciding it. Either the SCA applies extraterritorially or it doesn't. Whereas Congress has a much, you know, broader ability to really balance all the competing interests and come up with a solution that makes sense. And, you know, like I mentioned, this is a 1986 statute that was enacted long before email became prevalent, long before cloud computing was even conceived of, let alone widely used. And so my two cents is that it is a much better uh, use of the government's time for Congress to amend the statute and come up with a solution that makes sense rather than have the Supreme Court just decide up or down whether the SCA applies extraterritorially or not.
0: Okay. Well, then we'll see what happens and in which branch of government takes uh, the action to, to kind of resolve this question for now. Blaine Evanson of Gibson Dunn, thanks very much for being on the show. I appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Brian.
0: Zachary Price has written a forthcoming law review article tracing the historically determined strengthening of the First Amendment right to free speech and wondering whether contemporary events, for instance, fake news, could exploit weak points in the doctrine and lead courts to less vigorously guard against governmental regulation of expressive conduct. Here now from UC Hastings College of the Law is Professor Price. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Delayed to be here. Uh, so you write pretty often on salient constitutional questions. Uh, you've written recently in a forthcoming piece for the University of Pennsylvania's Journal of Constitutional Law, uh, an article entitled Our Imperiled Absolutist First Amendment. And in it, we'll get kind of to all the individual pieces, but you first posit the idea that the U.S., as compared to other kind of Western classically liberal democracies, has among the the most robust protections for speech. But that robust protection has only really cemented over the past couple of generations. And you note that at present, that uh, kind of First Amendment absolutism enjoys uh, a pretty strong judicial consensus across the ideological spectrum. But also, as the title suggests, you you write that it, it could potentially unravel Um, because of a few converging factors. One, uh, as you write, the fact that the First Amendment became stronger over time suggests that perhaps it could be historically contingent, and this could trend the other way, and also because of sort of a mix of social factors, among them things like fake news and and threats of terror, Um, and as you put it, apparent disinhibition of bigoted and hateful expression, um, among other social factors, that could... um, find kind of weak points, pressure points in the, in the First Amendment doctrine to roll back um, free speech protections and make for a less absolutist First Amendment here in the U.S. Um, so we'll unpack all that, but maybe first at the outset I could ask you why you felt it was important to, to write this article. Now certainly there's some some storm clouds that seem to be rumbling around the, the First Amendment doctrine, but I'd be curious from your point of view why you thought this was a, a good time to write this piece.
2: Sure. So I originally prepared this, uh, for a symposium that the, law, the Pennsylvania Journal of Constitutional Law was putting together, um, and, uh, it eventually would be published there. Uh, but the theme of the symposium was, uh, free speech as a response to hate crimes. And, um, I think that what the organizers probably had in mind was sort of, sort of like what we saw in Charlottesville, like using free expression and, and, uh, counter protest to push back on, you know, hateful ideas, but sort of got me thinking more generally about the way in which, in, on some deep level, as we'll talk about, I think our the First Amendment protections we have, this really robust set of protections, was itself um, developed by the Supreme Court against the backdrop of the civil rights movement, which um, made the justices uh, appreciate the value of really strong protection for expression of unpopular ideas or ideas that are unpopular in particular local context. So that just got me thinking about the way in which, you know, we have this this very robust set of uh, First Amendment protections, the way in which that's been a sort of striking uh, point of consensus among the Supreme Court justices, at least. Uh, and I think to some degree in the broader society and, and intellectual culture of our country, uh, despite uh, pretty strong divisions over other constitutional issues. Uh, and so maybe think about, you know, how we got to this point, and then thinking about this in the context of the recent election, thinking about a number of factors that um, might start to put uh, strain on that view of, um, of free speech.
0: Before we go too much further, we could also plant one more flag here at the outset um, relating to the title of your piece, referring to the absolutist First Amendment um, In at least a a few instances, the the government can regulate certain areas of speech. So it'd be fair to say the the doctrine isn't completely absolute. Um, But uh, that notwithstanding, it it does still stand among other Western democracies as as one of the most uh, protective of speech, correct? And could you sort of lay out exactly where the doctrine stands and specifically what uh, sort of things kind of can be regulated at at this point?
2: The first Amendment, of course, is not. Absolute. uh, The Supreme Court has recognized certain exceptions to protection for expression and uh, some sorts of regulation are allowed. Uh, But I think our First Amendment law has been distinctive in the breadth of protection it provides to the expression of all ideas, any ideas, no matter how uh, illiberal or hateful uh, and so forth. And that uh, finds doctrinal manifestation in, I think, two key animating principles which uh, listeners may well be familiar with, but just as a brief overview, uh, I mean, the core animating idea of modern First Amendment doctrine is the notion that any content-based regulation of speech by the government, meaning any regulation based on what's said as uh, the topic or subject matter, uh, is generally not allowed. Uh, it can be justified only under the strict scrutiny framework where it has to be narrowly tailored to some compelling government interest. Uh, and then... While uh, cities and towns and government entities can have time, place, and manner restrictions on protest activities, other speech activities, those have to be content neutral. They can't discriminate between the ideas being expressed in different sorts of protests. And then, so that's the kind of core animating idea, this principle of, of content neutrality, of neutrality between ideas. And the court has recognized a set of, the a kind of second countervailing principle some narrow exceptions to protection for free speech, uh, for example, threats are not protected, certain types of defamation, uh, fighting words, meaning certain types of insults, and importantly, incitement of violence. Uh, those are all categorical exceptions to First Amendment protection, but the court has defined those uh, very narrowly and uh, in, in, in put greater emphasis on that general rule of neutrality. So in contrast, uh, a lot of other countries, I mean, things vary greatly from one system to another, but um, a number of European countries, for example, have uh, exceptions to expressive protection for hate speech, uh, defined various ways, basically expression of um, ideas that demean or uh, insult various groups. And uh, also often have uh, broader carve-outs for incitement, uh, broader categories of um, advocacy of violence and so forth can be restricted uh, more easily than can be done here under the Supreme Court's doctrine. As,
0: As you do in your article, tell me how we got here, how the First Amendment developed Historically, to, to be pretty robust and pretty inviolable, you know, folks um, paying attention over the past few generations will note there have been some types of speech that have been uh, upheld and, and defended and protected by the high court that will defend lots of folks, like flag burning and you know the protests of homosexuality at, at uh, military funerals, things like that. But the protections weren't always so robust. You said until you said in in your piece you write that until maybe the '30s or '40s. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of doctrine built up around this uh, First Amendment. notwithstanding, of course, it's obviously the the very first line of the, the the Bill of Rights.
2: Sure. So this is a you know complicated story, but just to kind of provide a broad overview, um, we've obviously had the First Amendment in 1791, uh, but you know, first of all, it wasn't held to uh, apply to state governments; uh, applied only to the federal government until. Uh, I believe the 1920s, the Supreme Court first held that it was applied to the states through the 14th Amendment. Uh, but even then, um, as you say, we, uh, we don't really start to get robust judicial protections for, for expression, robust judicial enforcement of the 14th Amendment until about the 30s and 40s. Uh, before then, the, the court had this clear and present danger test that uh, ostensibly limited the government's ability to suppress subversive speech, but in practice gave the government a pretty free hand in suppressing perceived subversive groups. Uh, but then I think the first key step is in the 1930s, and here I'm drawing off, there's a really wonderful recent book by a scholar named Laura Weinreb that uh, shows how uh, judicial protection for free expression emerged as a sort of point of consensus between uh, labor group concerned about rights of protest and... Uh, uh, business interests, conservative economic interests that uh, had developed a kind of theory of individual rights protection. So it became a kind of point of consensus to have, uh, to allow judicial protection of rights of protest, of expressive freedom uh, in that context, and of course also against the backdrop of World War II and the rise of fascism, where our kind of expressive freedom was seen as a distinctive point of contrast for our free society as compared to other uh, repressive societies around the world. And that step is important because uh, progressive groups had generally not been keen on uh, constitutional judicial review in general, have coming out of the the Lochner period, where um, a lot of progressive economic legislation was invalidated by the Supreme Court. So free speech, though, gets picked up as part of this new uh, set of constitutional understandings coming out of the New Deal World War II period, when the court Uh, is no longer reviewing economic regulation very stringently, but does uh, try and enable the political process by scrutinizing laws that disadvantage uh, racial minorities, historically disadvantaged groups, uh, but also then uh, trying to free up expression of ideas to enable democracy to function better. So that's kind of the first um, key step. But even then, I think the court doesn't quite take on this view that I'm describing as an absolutist until about the 1960s and 1970s, um, before then had, um, gone back and forth about in certain communism cases about the degree of protection for, uh, radical, um, groups and, uh, had also in a case from 1952 called Beauharnais had upheld what we would now call a hate speech law what they refer to as a uh, group libel, um, Statute in Illinois. Uh, it's said in the 1960s when this court starts getting uh, free expression cases uh, against the backdrop of the civil rights movement that it really takes on this more absolutist, libertarian conception of the, the First Amendment, um, really building out this idea that, um, as the court often says, there's no such thing as a false idea under the First Amendment. A number of the key cases. Moving in this direction were themselves civil rights cases. Uh, one that listeners may be familiar with is the New York Times versus Sullivan case where the court cuts back on tort defamation law with respect to public figures in a case that involves, um, an attempt to suppress, uh, civil rights activity. Um, and then even in, in the 19, the important 1972 case, um uh, 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 Police Department of Chicago versus Mosley that, that adopts that, uh, now rule that uh, content-based regulation of speech gets strict scrutiny, um, it's not only itself a civil rights case involving a protest of discriminatory policies, but also um, consciously imports this, this kind of uh, strict scrutiny framework from uh, equal protection law, uh, conceptualizing what the First Amendment is about as, as restricting a kind of discrimination against uh, disfavored ideas. So that's the way in which there, I think the core elements of the doctrine we have now really crystallize in this period when um, the salient concern for the Supreme Court, at least one salient consequence of the decision it's making, is to protect um, these civil rights protesters, other dissident groups for whom the court has a lot of sympathy. And I think this, this history is important um, in its own right, probably because I think what we see now is a certain degree of progressive disenchantment with um, the First Amendment. So I think it's worth remembering that this broad protection that we have now that uh, benefits a lot of really odious groups uh, took hold in a period when it was quite apparent that it also had the benefit, which I think it still does today, of benefiting uh, folks on uh, the other side of the spectrum, progressive groups um, seeking societal change of, all, of other sorts.
0: Is the... It's kind of the principal driver is the principal reason why the, the civil rights movement was the catalyst that you write. It was here to getting a more robust First Amendment because of um, the nature of the movement, highlighting the marginalized groups. And then that encouraging the court to be more sympathetic to to marginalized uh, ideas that, that wouldn't be protected by a purely majoritarian um, form of government.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, so I don't I don't know. Uh, how much of it is the direct motivation for the justices for the law moving in this direction um you know to the extent that matters what their subjective purposes are i mean the court in during this period of course is uh building out doctrine and a lot of other areas too and so we're getting a more uh, protective libertarian constitution as a matter of judicial interpretation during this period a lot of other ways um, but i do think we could say that it's certainly and evident effect of the decisions the court is reaching, and in many of these cases, it's the cases themselves involve civil rights protesters and dissidents, so it's apparent that um, these are groups who are benefiting from this protection. And so, at the same time, the court has key decisions, like the key incitement case, uh, the Brandenburg test that adopts the modern narrow understanding of unprotected incitement, involves a Ku Klux Klan rally. So there, I mean, there are cases involving um, white supremacist groups. Also, but I think it's court sympathy is is not with those groups. It's it's understanding that the protections it's applying to them are going to be applying to um, lots of other groups as well.
0: I, I take it the fact that you see the First Amendment as responding to historical forces. Seems to to be the the premise upon which your article rests that historical forces could then trend it into a, a different direction. Is that fair to say?
2: Yeah. So I mean, it's it's you know they're kind of separate questions, right? How the court should interpret the Constitution ideally, and you know what it has actually done over the course of history. I mean, I think if you're going to have the court playing the role that it does in uh, our modern American constitutional system of developing doctrines and principles that convert the more general guarantees of the Constitution into a more specific or readily judicially enforceable constraints on government action, then, you know, that's always happening in particular historical moments or particular concerns or ideas may be more or less salient. Um, so I think that, I mean, the doctrine is always contingent in the narrow sense that particular people at particular times are, embracing it uh, but I think it also you know the relationship between the court and public opinion and broader trends is a is a complicated question but but clearly developments in the society uh, have have inevitably have some effect on the way the court views various issues.
0: I suppose maybe one good example is Fourth Amendment doctrine must respond a bit to the rise of technology and the ability of a government to, to more readily and easily surveil. Uh, citizens?
2: Sure. I mean, that's a great example. I mean, the Supreme Court right now has a number of cases this year dealing with really important questions about how the formula applies to various types of electronic evidence, cell phones, uh, cell cell site data. And so these are kind of problems arising as a function of technological change uh, where the court is going to have to kind of figure out what the Fourth Amendment should mean in this new... Technological and societal context that we find ourselves
0: in. Maybe diving into the the three principal social drivers you, you focus on that you see as um, potential forces that could drive a, a First Amendment doctrine trend um, away from robust protections and absolutism. Um, among them are, are fake news and more prevalent um, sort of hate speech, and also the the, the ongoing terrorist threat sort of really ever present in our society since 9-11. Why uh, why are those three in particular ones that that you sought to look at? um, Other ones, uh, of course, could also be seen to affect First Amendment doctrine? If you think about campus disruptions that folks might see, uh, keeping folks from from speaking in certain instances, or um, government surveillance, maybe chilling speech, Uh, why did you focus on those three? And you also note that these three can have the potential to really get at constitutional First Amendment doctrine weak spots. Probably as to that concept, what do you mean by the the pressure points that these uh, forces could get to?
2: Sure. So I should say, I mean, this is really very much written in the spirit of an essay that's kind of pointing out, reflecting on some current trends and, uh, and possibilities, uh, and, um, in a fairly tentative way. And so I focus on the things I don't, it's not a sort of overall systematic theory of the first amendment, um, but just really reflecting on how we got where we are and then some of the factors that might be pushing against the current consensus and, and why, um, I think we should be cautious about moving away from it. So I think there are a lot of factors that, um, at least um, superficially, in, a, in the current moment, seem to be driving us towards uh, less societal commitment to free expression. Um, and I mean, the most obvious is the president um, himself that we have now doesn't appear to value uh, open debate, exchange of ideas, uh, criticism of the government, uh, terribly highly, uh, and that, you know, may well, um, diminish the commitment of some of his supporters to free expression as, as an idea. I think the campus, um, disruptions are, uh, may be indicative of a broader trend as well in terms of decreased tolerance of opposing ideas. Um, And I think in general, just a a feature of the depolarization in our society is that if if people find other people's ideas uh, objectionable and um, find other people less persuadable on on key points, then they may be kind of less committed to the idea of open debate and and exchange of ideas. So there's a lot going on that might or might not be be causing us to move in a somewhat different direction, at least in society and a political culture. Uh, but I tried to pull out these three things that struck me as particularly salient following the, uh, 2016 election, and that also have some, at least, possibility of purchase on the existing doctrine. So, for example, you know, the fake news problem, which we can talk about, um, is something of an area of ambiguity in, in First Amendment law. The court has, um the last time it thought about false statements, uh, it didn't have, uh, Unified majority opinion. Uh, to some degree, false statements in some contexts get less protection, um, but it's not entirely clear how to think about them as a general problem. Um, hate speech, the court seemed to, you know, it, it, back in 1952, it had seemed to recognize a kind of categorical exception for what it then called group libel. Since then, a number of times it suggested that that's, that it, it no longer has that view, and I think the court's uh, decision from the last term um, makes pretty clear that it no longer accepts that, that as a, a carve-out to its general protection for ideas, for ideas that demean particular groups of people or races or religions or whatever. Uh, but it is a point uh, where I think you see a lot of um, ferment, a lot of uh, people uh, increasing criticism of that aspect of the First Amendment doctrine. Um, and there could be the possibility of, of getting at, of building out the exceptions for threats and incitement in ways that um, get at hate speech um, indirectly. Uh, and then with terrorism, I think that, it, it, you know, if we're in a period of increased risk of ideologically motivated violence, then um, that could make it appear more attractive to try and suppress the ideas uh, behind that violence, and um, the court did actually have an important case a few years ago uh, dealing with the international context, but where it it seemed to open up the Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project case. Um, the analysis is a little... Uh, I mean, You don't have to read it this way, but it could be read to kind of open a door to restricting more types of terrorist advocacy under even a strict scrutiny analysis. So that at least opens the possibility of uh, greater upholding regulations to try and get at terrorist advocacy directly, notwithstanding the narrow definition for incitement.
0: Maybe just uh, drilling down a little bit more on each of these with with fake news. First, um, how exactly would you define fake news? I assume you're using that term in a way differently than, say, the president. Um, and the subtitle that, that heads this section on fake news is sort of grimly titled uh, Enlightenment Protections with Without Enlightenment Minds. Um, that seems to me to be getting a bit at a pressure point here, um, being that one kind of philosophy or axiom that undergirds the First Amendment free speech protections is that if all perspectives are out there, then the best one will prevail. You know, more speech is better. We'll get to the right point of view. Um, but if altogether fabricated pieces of information are able to spread as quickly as they seem to be able to during the election. For example, I know just to give one example, uh, the Pope was reported by some outlet on, online to have endorsed Donald Trump. Um, this is not true, but I, it was, that piece of information was interacted with and spread to uh, hundreds of thousands, I think if not millions of, of people. Um, certainly that doesn't seem to represent the idea of the best idea winning out is the fact that fake news kind of really undermines that that axiomatic belief in in the best ideas prevailing? What uh, what's most sinister here?
2: So I I do think that's the right way to think about it. I mean, I think that the fake so I think of the fake news problem as really the deliberate propagation of demonstrably untrue claims that nonetheless shape public opinion. So the the Pope example is is great. I mean, Donald Trump's use of the birther controversy is another uh good example uh you know this sort of it's just not true right president obama was born in the united states but uh, to this day polls suggest that something like a quarter of people think that at least probably he was born elsewhere And so these ideas can really take hold and i think the uh internet social media this new technological media environment has uh Made it much easier for this sort of thing to propagate, uh, taking away intermediaries like, you know, newspapers and so forth that in the past might have, uh, cut off, um, this sort of false claim. And I do think the way you've, the characterized the, the core concern, the core concern I could, I express in the paper is a kind of disenchantment or demoralization with the, the idea of wide open expression because it does, it, it, it's just, Disheartening that uh, people end up believing things that aren't true uh, just because they're they're propagated, and it, and it really plays off some deep tendencies that we all have to uh, find things that make sense to us, that uh, appeal to our emotions or our pre-con- preconceptions, uh, find a certain thing more salient, more persuasive than competing evidence. We, none of us really um, look at things as objectively and rationally as we might. Uh, like to think. So I think there's a kind of broad, long-term risk of a kind of disenchantment with free expression as an idea if if we keep seeing truth failing to win out in um, open debate. I actually think that's not the right way to think about what the First Amendment is doing and not the way the best opinions have characterized this broad protection that the court has developed it's really a kind of underpinning for democracy, for all of us to have the chance to have a say in the development of ideas and beliefs in our society. Um, And that doesn't, you know, the good ideas have not always won at different points, but the real point is we don't have any better way of bringing that about than, than enabling open debate. And it's a kind of, it's a valuable protection for all of us to at least have the chance to try and Persuade others and have, have the, it, part of what democracy means is to have the government policy reflect an organic development of ideas within the society rather than having the ideas within the society um, reflect what the government wants us to think. And so from that point of view, I mean, I think that in the more immediate term, uh, it may be appealing, uh, to some folks to uh, try and regulate more directly, you know, false speech on the internet, but I think that Uh, As you mentioned before, I mean, if you just think about uh, the way President Trump uses the term fake news to characterize almost any negative publicity about him, I think that illustrates the danger in opening the door to that and allowing government, direct government regulation of truth or falsity. And that's not at all to minimize the problem of fake news. I just think we need uh, to be thinking about solutions that don't involve that sort of direct government regulation.
0: Are there not existing constitutional uh, car outs from the First Amendment that sort of without being expanded could do some work against fake news? I mean, libel seems to be one that comes to mind when you see some of the things that are said about folks in the news, even notwithstanding the very high bar that public figures need to to clear when bringing libel suits. Um, Are there any current tools in in the doctrine to get at this problem?
2: Yeah, so uh I think there are I think I mean libel law in that New York Times the Sullivan case I mentioned earlier the Supreme Court un- held that the first amendment requires a proof of actual malice uh meaning basically deliberate or reckless falsity rather than just falsity per se uh as a basis for uh liability in a in a defamation suit by a public figure including any kind of political figure. So some of this stuff if you could figure out who is generating it uh you might be able to impose liability, even under that standard. Um, I mean, I I don't address the paper, but um, I think it's worth thinking about, and could also be permissible to some degree, is, is just a broader disclosure of who actually is behind various speech. I mean, one of the things with the internet is it enables a lot of anonymous and even automatically generated expression, you know, Twitter bots and so forth. And uh, in the campaign finance context, at least, the Supreme Court has allowed disclosure uh, regulation to disclose the I- identities of donors and so forth. And and it seems to me that a more promising – if we're talking about government regulation, a more promising avenue that might be more consistent with the First Amendment would be to try and create more transparency about who's speaking and uh, – what interests are behind them. Uh, but I think we're generally this is, you know, this is a kind of multifaceted problem that's going to require multifaceted solution and will require development of new techniques, new civil society initiatives, greater media literacy. Um, I think if, you know, in time, as with earlier communications technologies, people will likely adapt, uh, become less, gullible, more savvy about uh, what to believe and what not to believe. Um, and so this may be a problem that it, through lots of different avenues, hopefully will start to work itself out over time. Uh, and we're, we're just going through a, a complicated transition moment right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. As you say, there are kind of learning curves or media literacy learning curves for folks throughout history, getting used to, to new types of, of media. You know, the fake news is Sort of a neologism, but um, it's also you know, another way—just a new iteration of, of propaganda—is uh, the is the worry of doctrinal kind of overcorrection greater here than it would have been previously when uh, in, in instances when, when traditional uh, style propaganda was was prevalent.
2: So it's a great question. So it's certainly been. The case, uh, from what I understand that, you know, we've had previous technological leaps like development of radio or development of television. There have been concerns about what it will do to the political system and it's required a kind of adaptation within the legal system and the society. And I think that's sort of, uh, what we're experiencing now as well. Um, I think there is some danger of Overreaction, which is not to minimize the, the problem of fake news, but just again, the, you know, if the, if the response is to enable government regulation of truth or falsity and political advocacy, I think that's a pretty perilous path to go down. Um, so I think we're seeing, you know, I mean, under our current doctrine, for example, the, you know, the media companies like Facebook and Twitter and so forth are, um not government actors, they're private actors and they're experimenting with various initiatives. We've got a lot of civil society groups trying to think about how to handle this problem. And so I think it is going to require a lot of thought and different types of initiatives. And, um, you know, I, I think a lot of, we need a lot of people thinking about how best to address it. Um, but just the only concern I want to highlight, I was trying to highlight in the essay is the way in which it might make direct regulation of truth or falsity seem appealing uh, in some quarters. Might cause a kind of broader disenchantment with free expression, but I think those are both things that we should try and uh, guard against.
0: Relating back to the point you made about the robust protections arising during the civil rights movement, it's an interesting juxtaposition of The sorts of speakers that might be a a bit less sympathetic here. Um, It's one thing to to really endorse and and to create a a doctrine supporting speech that seeks the ability of um, marginalized groups to have equal rights in society. Parties that are trying to spread really um, kind of insidious and provably false things to to throw off a a social um, fabric. Those sorts of parties are a bit less sympathetic, which is kind of gets at another theme that's layered into your piece: that acting against these sorts of things not only might be kind of possible with the existing doctrine, but in some instances seem like a pretty attractive idea. That maybe people would be pretty amenable, as you've said, to to go ahead and weaken First Amendment protections to guard against things that have seemed pretty pernicious.
2: Yeah, so I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think they're. they're, I mean, these are real problems. I mean, fake news is a real problem. Um, you know, this apparent resurgence of, uh, hateful ideas or at least disinhibition is, you know, seeing people coming out of the woodwork, expressing ideas about white supremacy that, you know, I many of us had hope had been more thoroughly repudiated, uh, to sort of see these, these are real problems I mean, and terrorism and political violence are real problems. Um, and I think there are things that make, di- you know, to some degree, different groups, but are some of the factors that might make direct regulation of expression of certain ideas uh, more appealing to some groups than it has been, uh, at least in the recent past. Um, so I guess the concern that runs through the essay is just highlighting that this absolutist approach that we've had has some real costs. It it protects some really expression of some really awful ideas, ideas that uh really um are hurtful to uh and, and threatening to uh groups within our society. Uh and so these are real costs to the level of protection the Supreme Court has provided. Uh but the great the I think the benefit of this the overall approach the court has followed with a pretty high degree of consensus, as I said before it's really that provides a very clear, uniform rule that applies to government actors at all different levels, um, all different local communities. Uh, and I think in a the sort of highly polarized society that we have, where people uh, may have very different intuitions about what expression is most false or most dangerous or most threatening, that having that kind of across-the-board protection um, is really... Important on some level for all of us. I think that if you start opening the door to regulating speech based on people's perceptions of its dangerousness uh, and so forth, then um, you could see a, a lot of fairly biased enforcement. Um, and frankly, you know, progressive groups might well be the most vulnerable to that sort of thing, uh, at least in some jurisdictions or even at the federal level in the current context.
0: You write that the the potential problems that could arise, perhaps a self-evident enough thing to say that watering down First Amendment protections is is a a bad thing. But you say in particular in the context of a highly polarized, um, very socially polarized, politically polarized country at the moment that the fallout could be worse than at other times perhaps in in history. Um, What uh, what, what do you mean by that?
2: So... um I think that, uh, what I'm trying to get at is that at least within the society, within our kind of political system, I think that you can end up in a kind of tit for tat sort of situation. Or the, um, you know, leading First Amendment scholar Eugene Volokh talks about, uh, has this idea of censorship envy. That sort of, if one group, you know, speech that threatens one group gets restricted, then it kind of makes it harder to justify not providing the same sort of uh, protection for other groups. And, I you know, First Amendment law is principally constructed by the Supreme Court, so in that sense it's probably fairly stable, but I think as a kind of political matter, uh, if you started opening the door to certain types of restrictions, uh, you could, within the polarized dynamic of our society, um, it, 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 you could start to see people on the other side of the spectrum um, wanting uh more restrictions as well and so you could end up with a situation where the, the political culture as a whole becomes less uh less committed to free free expression overall. And it's possible to imagine a similar sort of thing on the Supreme Court, although that's you know, it's more complicated because judges aren't, you know, should at least be taking a broader view. But uh for example if You know, the I think the most likely thing probably would be uh, a greater relaxation of the incitement standard uh, in the terrorism context. Uh, But I think if that happens, then again, given the kind of structure of our law enforcement system, uh, you know, if you relax standards for incitement with respect to certain terrorist groups, for example, that could end up getting applied uh, in other sorts of contexts as well. By local prosecutors and juries and I mean that's ultimately I think why the court to begin with took that narrow view of what counts as incitement and um, you know you could see that sort of dynamic where if certain groups start getting uh, prosecuted then people on the other side of the spectrum might, might want others to be prosecuted as well and we sort of end up generally moving away from the, the very strong across the board protection that we have now.
0: Yeah, that was my last question about one of some of the 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 most likely or most available doctrinal outlets for uh, maybe a watering down of First Amendment protections. You could spin out just briefly that one you mentioned. How would um, the current doctrine be kind of amenable to broadening of the incitement exception with regard to specifically terrorism-type regulations?
2: Yeah, so as I said, I think that's probably among the – Pressure points identified that might be the most realistic, uh, in part because the court sort of went in that direction already, or at least opened the door to this type of argument in that Boulder versus Humanitarian Law Project case I mentioned. So there, the court didn't change the incitement standard from Brandenburg, but instead upheld, uh, Material support, it dealt with this material support statute that applied to foreign terrorist groups, but applied, upheld the law despite saying it was a, a speech restriction as applied in this context, in the context of the case, upheld it under strict scrutiny. So that might, that theory might work with respect to certain domestic regulations as well. It's in at least an area of ambiguity following the case. Um, or the court might, uh, could conceivably rethink the, the narrow Brandenburg test itself, which which at present really, the as incitement, the, the effect, the re- outlet into actual violence or criminality has to be really immediate. Um, but uh, if you relax that imminence requirement, then you could start to get at violent advocacy of diff- various sorts on the Internet and other contexts as well. So, you know, I mean, so the, a lot of, another thing I want to, emphasizes. I mean, these are how to construct the doctrine in these areas as a matter of first principles may be a hard question. Uh, I mean, I think this is something that all free societies struggle with is this boundary between um, kind of protecting public safety and public order and uh, protecting free expression. And, you know, we've had a doctrine that's very protective of expression of ideas, and we've used other tools like conspiracy prosecutions, Um, And the court has also allowed enhanced penalties for bias-motivated crimes or um, terrorist crimes. So we we kind of get at the conduct more directly rather than um, trying to stamp out the expression. And I think that the virtue in maintaining that approach is just, particularly on the Internet, you just have such a profusion of overheated rhetoric of all sorts that you really could start to open the door to a lot of repressive prosecution if you start opening the door to that, treating that sort of thing as as unprotected.
0: Certainly, the right to free speech has been viewed for a long time as kind of the, the keystone of American democracy. So it will be tremendously interesting to see um, how it uh, fares as it's buffeted by some of these pretty pernicious social forces. Um, for now, we can leave it there. But Professor Zachary Price from UC Hastings School of Law. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me.
2: Sure. Delighted to talk with you. Thanks very much.
0: And with that, our show for October 20th, 2017 is complete. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm Brian Cardyle. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.